We are concluding our series on Lamentations. We're going to be reading, actually, I'm going to read for you the same passage that we just spoke out, just because it's a summary of the fifth chapter. You remember that Lamentations takes place when Jerusalem has been destroyed and the people are in deep despair. Their lives have been totally ruined. And they're uh, wondering and, and complaining and uh, crying out to God, who in the book isn't really giving them too much of an answer. And in this particular chapter, which is the last one, this is um, all coming in the voice of the people. You'll see that it's in the plural, the first person plural. And it's kind of, um, as someone has described it, it's an echoing of the ebbing of energy among the survivors. It's kind of their their last gasp as this book ends, calling on God to remember them, but wondering if he really will. So we'll read select verses from Lamentations chapter 5, which should be projected on the wall in just a second. Remember, O Lord, say the people, what has befallen us? Look, and see our disgrace. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these three things our eyes have grown dim. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forget, forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. In November of 2013, Typhoon Haiyan struck the Philippines. It was the strongest tropical cyclone ever recorded at landfall. The strongest ever in terms of sustained wind speeds, reaching a sustained one-minute speed of 195 miles per hour. It caused catastrophic damage, destroying whole towns and villages. It caused about 6,300 confirmed deaths, with estimates of the nameless dead, of course, much higher, and rendered about one million people homeless. One little girl managed to reach one of the evacuation centers as the typhoon came. As the waters began rushing in, and her mother shouted at her to go up to the second floor, she cried out this prayer, Jesus, Lama, Tama, Napo, Jesus, please, enough. A staff worker talked with her later and heard her story. And then a man who was teaching Old Testament at a seminary in the Philippines reflected on the cry of this girl, Jesus, please, enough. 
And he said, I want to reflect on the theology behind this prayer. I think we can learn three things from it. First, God is viewed as the one causing the disaster. That's why the girl asked Jesus to stop. Secondly, the girl sees Jesus as the Savior, which is why she's calling to him for help. And thirdly, God is addressed as Jesus. The first two statements, he said, seem contradictory. God cannot be both the one who brings disaster and the one who delivers from disaster. And yet in this prayer, the punisher and the Savior is one. God is both the cruel judge and the merciful father. And this raises the question of why. If God is good, the Savior, why is he punishing us? And if he's the cruel one, then why pray to him in the first place? But this young girl apparently had not too much problem holding those two things together. And this teacher said, I think the answer to how she can do that lies in the third statement. In calling to Jesus instead of God, the girl is voicing out what many of our people have learned of God, that God is one with us in our sufferings through Jesus. This Filipino girl belongs to a country where the primary image, the most popular image of Jesus is that of the crucified or suffering Christ. Our view of Jesus as God who is with us in our sufferings enables us to cling to the God who is our Savior and Father even in times of disasters. Jesus as God who is with us. The very meaning of the name Emmanuel, a sign given at another time of crisis in Judah, and a name that in its context then expressed both imminent judgment and hope of deliverance. We see in this story of this girl and in her cry almost encapsulated all the theology of lamentations. Now we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks talking about the pain and the sorrow and the despair of life. And as we come to the conclusion, I want to ask this question. How could we, and and I've encouraged us as we've gone along through Lamentations, I've encouraged us to put words to our despair. To not keep them hidden up in the recesses of our heart, in the darkness where the light can't touch them. But how can we express our deepest sorrows, our tragedies, our despair, and our distress without turning in on ourselves and becoming hopelessly and helplessly self-centered, sinking into a pit of despair? Again, I, I, I've kind of heard and I can, I can pick up from some of you as we've gone through this this study of lamentations, I'm, I'm kind of tired of the despair. I don't really want to hear of it. Or maybe if you're in a situation yourself of crisis, of, of despair, of pain, of sorrow, of loss, of fear, how do you keep that from 
causing you to turn in on yourself and just get swallowed up by this, by this cloud of despair. And in a couple of the commentaries that I've read over the last weeks on the book of Lamentations, one by Kathleen O'Connor and the other by Christopher Wright, they give us, both of them give us what I think are some wonderful helps to enable us to express our despair but not get swallowed up by it. And the first one is that Lamentations can be seen as a work of justice. You may have heard that Bell Hooks died this week. Bell Hooks was an author, professor, feminist, and social activist. She lived in the semi-rural South, in a place of white supremacy, but her community taught her how to lament And in that lamenting together, work for justice. Here's what she said. The absence of public areas where pain could be articulated, expressed, and shared meant that it was held in, festering, suppressing the possibility that this collective grief would be reconciled in the community even as ways to move beyond it and continue resistance struggle would be envisioned. A life-threatening despair took hold in black life. In other words, when we chose not to express ourselves, especially in our despair, nothing could change. Kathleen O'Connor says, Laments create room within the individual and the community, not only for grief and loss, but also for seeing and naming injustice. If you're not going to put the words on your lips, then there's not much you can do about the injustice, either as an individual or as a community. And O'Connor says this in the next quote, Without laments, without truth-telling received by compassionate listeners, without pain brought to the open, seen and heard, paid attention to and acknowledged, without the work of witnessing, there will never be a social solution. Lamentations is a vital resource for the work of peace and reconciliation. See how we're moving out of ourselves? We're acknowledging and expressing and understanding and feeling deep, deeply whatever pain we may be having. But we're putting it on our lips as a work of healing and a work of justice. O'Connor goes on to say this, next quote, by urging truth-telling before the powerful, oh, these prayers, of, uh, they, don't, they don't only um, lead us in the work of justice, they teach us resistance. By urging truth-telling before the powerful and providing language, form, and practice of defiance, 
Lamentations encourages resistance and promotes human agency. By lamenting, we're resisting. And promoting human agency or the idea that there may be something we can do about this. What can this mean in a wealthy, secure country where, as a people, we suffer from an excess of power? My answer, says O'Connor, is simple. Without coming to grips with our own despair, losses, and anger, we cannot gain our full humanity, unleash our blocked passions, or live in genuine community with others. Just leave the quote up there for a second, Christopher. Thanks. Without coming to grips with our own despair, if you avoid it, if you keep it out of your life, you're not willing to look at it, you're not willing to name it, you're not willing to feel it, you cannot gain our full humanity, unleash our blocked passions, or, and I think for me this is the most important, live in genuine community. Genuine community requires the expression of our pain and our suffering and our despair on whatever level it is. And then particularly Christopher Wright goes on talking about lamentations and the church. What do we as a church today do with lamentations? The next quote is from Christopher Wright. Finally, what message can lamentations have for the Christian church? We might begin to answer that by asking where we see ourselves in the book. The traditional and impulsive answer is to identify ourselves with the victims, the people of God suffering at the hands of violent enemies. In other words, our natural inclination is to think we're the victim. Christopher Wright says, no, we must start from a more uncomfortable position. The story of Christian anti-Semitism is one of the darkest stains on the face of the church. And because of the suffering it has caused, it should not be forgotten any more than lamentations lets us forget the destruction of Jerusalem. This perspective makes us read lamentations and see ourselves among those enemies who inflicted such humiliation and pain on Israel. And he goes on, And if that rings true to the history of anti-Semitism, it speaks no less powerfully to all other contexts in which the Christian church has aligned itself in reality or in its speaking with imperial power, military aggression, colonial greed, and sometimes genocidal violence. From the post-Constantinian Roman Empire, through the Crusades, the conquistadores, slavery, the church's preaching in support of the First World War on both sides, and even the rhetoric of some churches around the invasion of Iraq. The story of Christian complicity in wars, violence, and bloodshed 
is another of the scandalous blemishes on the bride of Christ, which only his return will wash away. In other words, lamentations encourage us not only to think of ourselves as victims, but as perpetrators. The ones inflicting the pain and suffering on others. And I can tell you that in the last two weeks, there have been two instances where I felt it necessary for me to stand up for powerless and victimized people within the context of our own Christian Reformed Church in this region. Just in the last two weeks. And I tremble. And I'm enraged. And even a bit despairing. It's 2021, ladies and gentlemen. And we're still doing this. How can this be? Next quote. Readers are invited to bring political calamity or any calamity into God's presence and to seek salvation. They are encouraged to look with merciful eyes at victims of political violence, even if those victims are not innocent. They are encouraged to see political evil for what it is and to speak its name. They are guided towards becoming honest-to-God lamenters, God-dependent prayers who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who refuse the political violence of empire, and who pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the book assigns us, next quote, and so the book assigns to us as Christian readers, and I, I, I just love this phrase, the missional task. And with mission, you're moving out of yourself and into the world. The book assigns to us as Christian readers the missional task of hearing the voice of the oppressed and persecuted, bearing witness to their suffering, and advocating on their behalf, which is part of the purpose and the power of lament. If you can't see the oppressed, the victimized, the marginalized, and if your heart doesn't break even a little bit, if you don't lament, then you're not going to be in a place to bear witness to their suffering and advocate on their behalf. Lamentations gives us tears for the world. A world weeping over the millions of deaths by disease, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, malaria, preventable childhood diseases. A world of grinding poverty and hunger, now even afflicting rich nations because of gross and obscene inequality. A world of mothers 
grieving over the death of sons and husbands, whether in the wake of rockets and suicide bombs in Israel or reprisal shelling in Gaza. A world of insane and endemic tribal and ethnic slaughter in South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and even parts of Europe and Eurasia. A world of accelerating creational damage and climate change that threatens the poorest and the weakest the most. A world in which in 2014, in which 2014 was deemed by several agencies to be the worst year ever for children. Abused, abducted, raped, mutilated, enslaved, forced into child armies, murdered and traumatized in mass shootings in schools from the USA to Nigeria to Pakistan and driven by war or hunger from their homes in their thousands to wretched refugee camps. Lamentations not only gives us the language for lament in such a world, surely it also demands that we use it. For lament appeals beyond the world and its tragic fallenness to the one about whom even lamentations can say, You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Lament, next quote, is missional because it keeps the world before God and it draws God into the world with the longing that God should act and the faith that he ultimately will. Lament is such a powerful way to prepare for Christmas. Because when you're lamenting, you're seeing the suffering. Could be just of yourself or your immediate family or some part of the world close by or far away. And you lament and you weep and your heart is broken and, and perhaps you're enraged. And all kinds of emotions go through you. And there are some situations that are out of your hand. There's nothing you can do. But cry out to God, why is it that these innocent children should suffer in this way? And why is it that those islands in the South Pacific are sinking? Why are you allowing that? Why are we allowing that? Or whatever lament it is. Or in the, world's, in the words of, the, of the, that little Philippine girl. Jesus. Please. Enough. And Christmas. Especially in the laments of this year. Reminds us of that verse from John 1. 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See that movement? The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and experienced our sorrow and our despair and our sadness. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace? Tons of grace. But also truth. Truth to speak out. Truth to work for justice. Truth to resist. To not allow those people to do that again. To not allow me to do it again. I've already mentioned in the last couple of weeks that if three years ago someone had told me what was going to be happening in the context of my immediate family over these last three years for sorrow, I wouldn't have believed them. And looking at this book for the first time in my life, I'll admit, and feeling this lament has resonated with some parts of where I am and where my family is. But these words of speaking it out and in that way speaking truth and in grace and making room for Jesus to come who himself suffered unjustly has helped me this year prepare for Christmas in ways that I haven't expected. And I'm longing for him to come more deeply. Not to fix things. I don't believe he's going to be fixing things very quickly. Some things are irretrievably broken. But just to be with us. And to know that he's there. And to know that he will never leave us. And that there is no despair, no sorrow, no pain that will ever separate us from his love. So I encourage you as you go into Christmas this year, especially if there is despair and sorrow in your life in a way that it maybe wasn't last year, to speak it out, to move toward justice, to move toward resistance, to move towards community, And to experience this Jesus, God in the flesh, dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. Amen.